Aramhansa Yogananda, a biography by Swami Kriyananda. Talk 13 by Asha Praver. May 22, 2012. Copyright 2012. Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto.
Okay, great souls. Here we are. Last, we have two more classes tonight and another night on this book. But we don't cease to show up here on Tuesday nights after that. We just go back to the spiritual warrior. Or so I believe we're going to do. Unless something happens to change our minds. But that's the plan right now. So, any questions or comments or thoughts about anything at all that might be even remotely relevant? (laughs) All right. Yes, Marilyn. So... The last, the last class um, when you were talking, it all of a sudden occurred to me that a lot of the people that in the community um, embody the salient characteristics of master. Right. I, you know, I just started realizing that that's what I'm experiencing. That's very, very good. The main reason that we're going through this is both to make ourselves observant of others and also to make ourselves conscious ourselves of who we're trying to be. Precisely. So that's precisely right. And I, I believe that many people in our community do embody the qualities of Master. Yeah. So it makes it such a lovely place to be. Yeah, it really is different. It's very, very different. different. Very, yeah, very, I think it would be... Very different. Yeah, since you've just moved in and really... Yeah. From a very another reality, you would really be particularly conscious of it. Yeah. But we should. I mean, it's not, it's not too high to aim. We should be just like he is. And that was what I thought of when I read these characteristics. I thought, we need to go over these, every one of them, because this is the definition of who we're trying to be. This is the perfect person we're trying to become. And we shouldn't settle for less. Yeah. All of Krishna's soldiers look like Krishna, so all of Master's disciples should look like Master. I can almost tell who is um, a devotee and who isn't in uh-huh. the community. Uh-huh. It, I don't know. It's, um, mm-hmm. I, sometimes I... I doubt my, um, you know, I, I don't know exactly if I'm, I question what I'm thinking or observing, but anyway, it seems to be, um, what I see seems to be validated eventually. Yeah. Well, you should be able to. You'll, you'll learn really to trust yourself because people who love God have a different vibration than people who are not thinking that way. They just vibrate differently. Their eyes look different. Everything about them looks different. I mean, I see it. I'm looking at it, you know. Sai Ganesha just started coming in the door a few months ago. He already looks like a different man. <laughs> and he went to Ananda Village this weekend and he looks even more different. <laughs> Stacy, I mean, and yourself. I'm pointing to you all because you've been here a very short period of time. Adam, who hasn't been with us that long. Everybody, you just look very different. You don't realize it yourself, but you just get on a different wavelength. That's what it is to be in tune. You've been singing one note, and that note has been, you know, the ego-based worries of the world. And there's no such thing as a material reality. We are just a vibration of energy. And if you change that vibration, everything about you is going to be different. It's the most amazing thing to watch. You go to Ananda Village, people show up on Friday night. When they leave on Sunday, they just look like different people. Really, totally different. We actually, now that we have this aura machine that can take pictures of the aura at East-West, they actually have one at Ananda Village. They haven't got it running yet, though. But it would be so fun to take pictures of the guests when they come in of their auras. You know, what their auras are like when they come and then what their auras are like when they leave. After we do a few controls to make sure that there's a, you know, that it works. But it'd be really fun to see, because it should be. It should be a complete transformation. You know, I remember even though it's been decades, I remember when I first came to Ananda Village, 
I was living in San Francisco, and I started coming to Ananda Village, and it, you know, it was just so amazing. The vibration was so different, and I realized, especially after I moved there, how much energy I had spent my whole life holding the world at bay, because the vibrations of the, my atmosphere were nothing I ever wanted to take in. And one of the things I discovered when I started living in the ashram was all of a sudden I had this tremendous, um, tremendously more available energy. And that was when I realized how much energy had just gone out just to hold myself neutral so that I wouldn't be swept away by the vibrations of San Francisco where I was living. Fourth and Geary, oh my God, you know. And I just got up there and all of a sudden I wanted to take in my atmosphere. And it just changed everything. Absolutely everything. I had this wonderful argument with this, uh, about 1976 or so. I went with Swami to New York City, somewhere in there. And we went to stay with this couple in this apartment. And I had been working in the retreat kitchen for 71 and 72. And we went to stay with this couple that I knew very well because they had worked with me in the kitchen. They'd spent a month or two and they'd washed dishes. And we'd been in there together a lot. My name had changed. Swami had named me Asha somewhere in there. So I got there with them, and I said, oh, yes, we've met. No, they said, we've never met. (laughs) Actually, we have, you know. We did meet. And then I said, we worked together in the kitchen. No, that was someone else. (laughs) 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 At which point I decided to accept it and say, yes, it was, actually. I must be mistaken. (laughs) (laughs) But it was so. (laughs) Something to look forward to. All right. Any other thoughts or questions? Is that, Marilyn, did you have more to say on that? Or that was a very good point. A man I met, I was speaking to just last night, I remarked to him that when I met him, he seemed like someone who was looking for this path. And he sort of got a little spooky, oh, can you, you know, read people like that? I said, no, but I can recognize people who are looking for this path. You know, there's a, where they're trying to attune themselves and they just look different than people who are closed. Yeah. Okay, anything else? So, Master Salient, characteristic number 26. I think I didn't read this. He never judged anyone. Did I read, did I read that last week? I did, because I talked about Mount Swamiji and the Portuncula at St. Francis. Yes? Yeah. I think I did. Okay, 27. I've indicated before this that he had a strong willpower. I remember a public function when he wanted to blow a conch shell, shell. It seemed he had all but lost the knack for doing so. Instead of giving up with a self-deprecating smile, however, he continued determinedly through several times until some sort of sound emerged. I can't say the sound was pure or beautiful, but it was unmistakably the sound of a conch shell. One afternoon, after I'd served lunch for him and a few guests, he had me sit at the table with him for a time. He then tried to flip a fork into his empty glass. Again and again he failed. When finally he succeeded, the fork broke the glass. But I got it in, he announced with an (laughs) impish smile. I think he was teaching me a lesson in perseverance whenever I set my will to anything. That's a really, it's a really interesting story. It's interesting too that the two examples that Swamiji uses appear to be in and of themselves trivial. You know, you could see that those are the kinds of occasions in which you would decide this doesn't really matter. You know, oh, so I can't blow the conch. And blowing a conch 
getting a fork into a glass. I mean, Swami could have chosen so many other examples, and yet the ones he, he picked to illustrate this seem in themselves meaningless. But person, he said in the case of the fork, he thought Master was teaching him a lesson. But Swamiji has often said to us, you know, just in terms of the power of your word and in one of our affirmations, um, which we you know, read in a cycle every year, one of them says, my word, let's see, something about my word is my bond, also my resolution. That's what the words are. My word is my bond, also my resolution. I've had to read that many times to figure out what the heck it means. But what he's saying is, it's not just a question of the words you give to others, but when you make a resolution within yourself, it's equally important that you keep it, which tells you to be a little careful about what you commit yourself to. But I've seen Swamiji just, if he's decided he's going to do it, and many times I've been on the wrong side of that. You know, he'll have, he'll have decided he's going to do something, and the, the cost looks like, look, often can sometimes look to me like too much. And instead of encouraging him to keep his word, I'll want him to protect himself. I remember in the book I wrote about him, when he was finishing the Gita television shows in India, when he was doing that first round of shows in around 19, 2003 or four, somewhere in there. And it was so, he was so unwell when he went to India in 2003. He just became so sick during that period of time. That was one of those periods. And just the effort to do, I think he was like doing five of those television shows every day. And I wrote in that story, because I was there for a piece of that time, I served him breakfast one morning, and they, you know, they were waiting. As soon as he was done with his breakfast, they were going to start filming. They had the film studio set up in the living room of the house he was living in. And I, I put his breakfast in front of him, and I came back you know, some minutes later, and he was just sitting there with his hands propping up his chin like that with his elbows on the table. I said, too tired to lift the spoon. He said, yeah. The effort to lift the spoon and to chew his breakfast was more than he had. Um, By that point, I think I'd probably learn not to tell him not to do it. But uh, maybe I didn't. I'm not sure what the story said, whether I said, maybe you shouldn't do this. If I did, I was a fool because I know him well enough. He actually dragged himself in there to do those programs. And as soon as he started, you know, it's just like by the end of the fifth one, he was, he was just filled with energy. There's like a, a when, you, when you exert your willpower against your own resistance, often you find that God feeds you if the, if the cause is righteous. But what I remembered really about that story is when he called Jyotish and Devi. And he was saying to them, essentially, that he thought he might have a heart attack and die but he had to finish these programs. And Jyotish had the intuition to say, yes, that's right. You've resolved to do it and you have to do it. And Swami spoke back to him. He said, I'm so grateful that you understand because everybody else was trying to talk him out of it. Here he is barely able to to make it and instead of supporting his resolution, people are undermining it with their sympathy. So it's, it's a very important lesson to learn not only in regard to him, but in regard to everyone, in regard to children and all your friends. If they make a resolution and they weaken in that resolution, don't think you're being a friend to them by saying, yeah, you don't really have to do it. If you said you're going to do it, you have to do it. Because otherwise you have no power in yourself. That's what Master is illustrating here. The power of ourselves is the power both of our willpower. I mean, willpower, 
It just simply cannot be overemphasized how absolutely important willpower is. Nothing in this world is attained without willpower. I mean, most people's success or lack of it is exactly in proportion to how much willpower they apply to the project. You know, people who are successful entrepreneurs, when I first um, started living with David, and he had already a number of successes in his life before he even showed up at Ananda, and as soon as he came to Ananda, everything he worked with, you know, just came out right. And it was sort of like, you know, he had the, the, this mysterious success karma, but as soon as I was in a closer um, capacity to observe him, there wasn't the slightest mystery about it. I'd never seen anybody who worked so hard. And he just worked consistently every day with complete concentration, and he just never thought about quitting. And he just would do whatever needed to be done. He'd do it as well as he could. He didn't worry about it, but he would just do it. You know, he took a little time off, but not much. And he never even, you know, questioned whether he would do it. He was just, this was his duty, he would do it like that. And I mean, I learned so much from him, just so fast, just watching it. Oh, this is what success looks like. And so often, when people set their mind to something, they just don't follow through. You know, they, do, they work for a while, they become interested in something else. I know when we were uh, trying to um, obtain the property where our community is now, we were trying to gather the investors who would buy it for us so that we could lease it from them. And we asked Swamiji a question about how should we pray for this. And his response is, don't bother asking God if it's a good idea. It's self-evidently a good idea. Just um, ask him how you can make it happen. And, and it was very interesting because I realized also how much we cut our willpower by making a commitment and then maybe deciding we shouldn't have made that commitment. Instead of even just saying, I made this commitment, I'll have to finish it now. I mean, I've seen Swamiji a lot of times, many times, say, well, I've decided to do it. I'm committed now. And he he just won't even bother to stop and ask. I've rarely seen him. Only once or twice have I seen him not finish something. Once when he was working on a creative project and somebody was trying to distract him. And, And he said, if you distract me now, I'll never finish this. And in fact, he was distracted and he never finished it. But almost never have I seen him not do what he said he was going to do, just because he will. And, and that gives both you the confidence that you can do it, and it also gives you a, a, a psychic, mystic power, because you, you're, you're invoking the power of truth every time you make a resolution. And every time you break your resolution... You're, you're basically weakening your power over the material world because your word doesn't mean anything. You say, I'm going to do it, but then you don't. So the next time you say something, just inherent in that commitment is the memory of the fact that sometimes you keep your word and sometimes you don't. So why would the universe arrange itself to match your commitment at this point? So it's very... Um, I mean, concurrent with that is that you have to be realistic in what you commit yourself to. This is what we talked about when we were doing the material success course. You have to, your, your intuition has to be guided real, with a realistic understanding of who you really are. And people get themselves in trouble by making resolutions that are not appropriate resolutions. And then their ability to fulfill them is simply impossible. 
because they don't, they've, they've made the wrong resolution to begin with. But that's a more subtle aspect of this. But Master, of course, never did that. He was going to blow the clutch. The other thing that I find here, then I'll, Marilyn, I'll let you speak once you get the thing, is that this is one of those you should practice all the time kind of things, which is keep your small resolutions and you'll find it easier to keep your big ones because it will become your habit of mind to do what you say. And so I think the other sort of reason conceivably why he put these small examples is that he also wants us to understand that the, the big events of our life are built on all the small ones. And if we're solid in the small ones, we'll be more inclined to be solid in the bigger ones because we'll have trained ourselves when it was easier to just set our will to it and make it happen. What were you going to say? Yeah, the small, the small resolution. No, it's on. Mm-hmm. The small resolution. About three days ago, I decided that... About three days ago, I decided that I was not going to avoid anything. Mm-hmm. because I was noticing I was avoiding a lot of things. Like I would avoid opening my mail. I would avoid washing dishes, just minor things. Mm-hmm. So anything that's in front of me, I'm doing instead mm-hmm. of avoiding. As soon as I realize I'm avoiding it, I go do it. And um, that's a good way, I think, to practice willpower. An extremely good way to practice willpower, and a salient characteristic of masters is willpower. Because, you know, there's so much involved in avoiding um, There's the imaginary thought that it'll be easier later. Um, There's the absolute bondage to your likes and dislikes. There's the belief that um, energy is finite and I can't spend too much of it. Um, There's the belief that things are really difficult and make me unhappy. There's just so many elements involved in the little act of not being willing to wash the dishes or open the mail. And if you fight all those battles, Yogananda said... If you take care of the minutes, incarnations will take care of themselves. That's an amazingly interesting thing to contemplate. So it's sort of like you think that this is a small issue, but you're setting a tone for your consciousness. And I mean, I've certainly found that by um, training myself on small things, it has developed uh, a greater capacity to face large things. I'm still battling it a lot. I don't have freedom, but I certainly have more freedom, you know, and I, I love to play the game with myself. What do you think is going to happen, you know, in the next two hours that's going to, like, either make this go away or make it easier? Like, what's the difference? I'm going to do it now or I'm going to do it later. Why don't I just try doing it now? See what happens. And, and sometimes you add things into unpleasant tasks, like nice music or some something interesting to listen to or I always wait till the ironing has really piled up, then I call my sister. Because <laughs> we have these very long conversations and I can iron the whole basket, you know. I'll just put her on speakerphone and we can just talk. You know, because it's just too deadly dull otherwise, but you, you can just find a way to make both things work. So it's, it's possible to work with your willingness, you know, to, so to, to use allowable crutches at different times. But then, you know, also I, I, I play games with myself. Like I have a friend who's in prison and he's been in prison for as long as I've known him and he will probably be there for, he may well be there, I hope he's not, for a lot longer. And I often compare my disinclination to do something with what it would like to be in a prison cell. In other words, I think, if you're not careful, honey, you might have a real problem. 
you know. So why don't I accept with gratitude this instead of calling this a problem because otherwise um, the God will escalate. And I don't really want him to escalate. I'd rather just stay where I am right now. Yeah. Yeah, it is a little scary, but practice when it's easier. <laughs> okay, any other thoughts on that? Um, number 28 his nature was enthusiastic but never bouncy. It's amazing what Swami took the trouble to say. Can you imagine? You just don't think of a, a God-realized master as being bouncy. <laughs> but he wasn't. His nature was enthusiastic but never bouncy. He never reacted emotionally to anything. That's quite a sentence, isn't it? He never reacted emotionally to anything. His enthusiasm was always an expression of his bliss in God. And that, that's just, that's it's similar to what we were just saying. It's like the bane of our existence is the fact, and an and emotional reaction you have to understand. I mean, in this context, many of you have had these classes, but not all of you. Emotion is not the same as feeling. This is the distinction that, you know, that we make in our conversation about these things, is that Master often reacted with deep feeling which is that he wasn't just dry and his heart was fully engaged and he you know, experienced other people's realities on many dimensions. But emotion is, is feeling that is, is ego-identified with your likes and dislikes. So an emotional reaction is, oh, I wasn't feeling very well, but now that this has happened, I feel great. You know, or now that this has happened, I feel so depressed. And so we're always having these variations in the quality of our consciousness based on external circumstances that we judge pleasing or not pleasing. I've had an interesting experience in the last few days, and I don't, as a rule, follow my horoscope. I don't ever follow my horoscope. I have no idea what it's doing. But I believe in it. I know that that you go through these periods and things happen. I've been saying lately that my moon is in Hades, I think, right now. <laughs> I've just had this extraordinary sense of, of pressure, sort of on a feeling level. You know, that's why I think it's my moon that has gone into Hades. There's just this slight sense of being tortured. It's just slight, not really big, but just slight. And it's really interesting to me because I'm very conscious of the fact that 25 years ago, I would have taken that feeling very personally. And it would have caused me to be, you know, I would have believed it more. I would have believed that something was actually happening to me that, that would necessitate my freaking out. Now I'm just conscious of this sort of push toward my freaking out, but I'm not going to go with it because there's no real grounds for it. I mean, that's, I could be making all this up. You know, maybe I have an allergy to something I've just been eating. I have no idea. So I don't even know if it's astrological. I've just defined it that way. Because I can feel the inclination, but I can also feel the disinclination to allow it to actually affect me. Just, okay, so this is happening, and therefore, you know, even-minded and cheerful is a little bit more of an effort. The inclination toward toward becoming anxious is more of a temptation. But we don't have to go there merely because your internal radar is telling you that you have to. Master um, was always enthusiastic, but never bouncy. 
He never reacted emotionally to anything. Emotionally is when you allow the conditions of your life to determine your happiness. His enthusiasm was always an expression of his inner bliss. I mean, just there is so much in those three sentences. It is the nature of joy to want to share itself. And as soon as joy wants to share itself, it becomes enthusiastic about everything, doesn't it? That is such an interesting statement and so profound. I mean, I went to see the Marigold Hotel movie on Sunday, which some of you have probably seen. It was totally fun, just completely fun. It's right over at this theater right here. You know, it's a movie about people of retirement years. The theater was really full of people in their retirement years. It was the oldest audience I think I'd ever seen, and we fit right into it, you know. It was really senior discount one after another going into that movie. (laughs) But it was just a very happy movie. It was a feel-good movie. You came out feeling good. And the first thing I wanted to do was tell somebody else about it. Oh, we went to see the movie. We enjoyed it so much. I mean, it's just so instinctive. And the enthusiasm is based on the fact that you feel happy and you want others to feel happy. Swamiji's comment when he was asked if he was happy, he said, true happiness is the desire to make everyone else as happy as you are. And if, if that is not manifested, you're not really experiencing true happiness. You're just not miserable. But uh, even if you call yourself happy, and that's the enthusiasm of bliss that you, you just feel blissful and you want everyone else to be happy. And whatever it is that's making you feel blissful, of course, for Master, it was the bliss itself that he had. And so he would put out this enthusiasm really toward everything. I mean, those of us who were with Swami this weekend, you just sort of saw that. He would just sit there and he was so blissful and he just wanted to give that to everyone. It was just He wasn't content to hold it. He wanted everyone to come up and greet him People said to me later, oh, I thought maybe I shouldn't because so many were greeting him. But I said later, you know, if you're sitting there and you don't come up and greet him, even if you're number 297, he'll say later, why didn't she come and greet me? It was my birthday. (laughs) You know, just like it wasn't, he's not counting. He's not hoarding his energy. It's that he's feeling this great bliss from Master and he wants to give it away. And that's where his enthusiasm comes from. Swamiji often has commented in other contexts. People say, Master liked mangoes, Master liked this, Master liked that. Swami said, Master didn't like anything. Master loved God, and he was enthusiastic about everything. Maybe he was expressing it about mangoes, but it wasn't about mangoes. It was about the bliss that he had inside that just spilled over into everything that he did. And this is also a technique for what we were just talking about. You know, why should washing these dishes make me miserable? Just how can I be enthusiastic about washing these dishes? It's just a habit of the mind that says, these things are pleasant and these are not. I like to do these and I don't like to do those. But what makes us miserable is all that um, ego-identified vacillation between one reality and another. And the the most marvelous thing about this is literally there is no limit to this. That's where the stories that was told of, um, was it Cellini, was it the artist who was imprisoned by the Pope because he refused to do any more art for the Pope until the Pope paid him. And the Pope put him in jail and put him in this tiny cell with rat-infested damp cell with a small window where there was one hour of daylight the whole day, and and all he had was a Bible, and during that one hour he would read the Bible, and he became so blissful 
that he, you know, he wrote to others, oh, if you want to feel perfect bliss, you know, be arranged to be put in a cell with rats and wet straw and one hour of daylight and just the Bible to read. You know, he became totally enthusiastic about what everyone else would consider miserable because his enthusiasm was not an emotional reaction to his circumstances. It was an expression of his inner bliss. And so even if we're not feeling that bliss, it's always very good on the spiritual path, especially in the beginning years, but believe me, the discipline lasts, well, as long as I've been here, which is a while, and it goes on, let me just say it like that, when you, to try to solve every problem at the highest level you can bring your energy to, which is to say the highest level you can bring your energy to is to be enthusiastic about everything because of a state of inner bliss. So if it's just the dishes and you don't want to do it, and you have a crabby internal attitude toward doing the dishes from whatever habit that might be, and I often don't do the dishes, but David's sense of disorder kicks in before mine, so I have a strategy in not doing the dishes, because often, if I don't, he will, but that's beside the point. (laughs) But if that's not going to work for you, (laughs) um, and you really don't want to do something, uh, ask yourself why. You know what am I what am I giving into, and how can I create within myself a higher state of bliss that will make this job not unpleasant? That's why I said where you start finding something like, if I'm I have to do some cooking and I'm bored, and I'm bored doing it, I think oh if I put on one of the treasures tape tapes onto the CD player right here, and start listening to Swami speak, that will change my consciousness and then I won't care whether I'm cooking or not. So it's not like you just have to stand in a vacuum and make it happen. But you think, what can I do to shift my consciousness upward instead of, you know, having a beer or something that shifts your consciousness downward? How can I shift my consciousness upward so I will spontaneously be enthusiastic because I have a greater inner sense of joy here? What about mindfulness? Well, mindfulness... The question is, what about mindfulness? Having never really done a path about mindfulness, I, I like to change the feelings of my heart. I don't find it terribly interesting just to notice myself. I've, I'm kind of bored by that. But I've never seriously practiced mindfulness. But I think, mind, I, think I am practicing it by saying, you know, what's going on here? So you know? Somebody tell me what mindfulness is, and then I'll answer the question. Can you define mind? Can you define mindfulness to me? And not in the classic term, but it's being present and aware and conscious, and being also aware of what you're doing. So it's a kind of a, you know, you're there and you're doing it, but you're also aware of it. Oh, I know a way to put that. Pardon me. It's a, it's a concentration. I was just going to say, insofar as mindfulness means to be in the moment and put your full energy into whatever you're doing, then absolutely this path is about mindfulness. Because the only thing that makes you bored when you're doing something is that you're thinking about where else you want to be. You know, you, you have divided your attention between what you're doing now and what you wish you were doing. You've divided your attention between the responsibility of having to take care of it and the wish that you didn't have to take care of it. Whereas if you were just simply doing it with full concentrated interest, there would be no other reality. And when you're in a one-pointed reality, you always discover that that reality is bliss. So is you, yeah. This is good 
<laughs> so that means I can like listen to a treasurer's talk while I'm weeding. Yes, of course. Because I thought that wouldn't be a good thing to do, because that, that would mean I was dividing my attention between two things. But, th but see, that, be that means I just don't understand. Well, I think it's an allowable thing to do, because you have to be realistic. If, in fact, listening to Swamiji speaking to you while you're working on the weeds brings you down from your God awareness, then I think you should stay with your God awareness. If it brings you up, from your restless blank-mindedness, then I think you should listen to the talk. It's a matter of direction. And I find it, if I bring in a vibration that's higher than the one I have, it raises my vibration, and then maybe after a while I'm comfortable and I want silence, but it helps me. Oh, okay. That does it does get kind of hard to keep thinking about the weeds all the time. I yeah. mean, I... I know I can't be thinking about myself, but it's still hard to be think, looking, listening to the birds and listening to the way the weeds get pulled out and stuff. No, I, I myself am bored with that too. Okay. Yeah, I just, I just get bored. The mundane world is just not that interesting to me and I just don't have the spiritual capacity to feel God in all those things. So I bring in a higher vibration, okay. which then can often lead to a more God awareness of the mundane task you're also doing, or it just gives you something higher to concentrate while you carry it out. Because we do need to weed. Yeah, we do need to weed. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I had to, when I was working on the school costumes twice, I had to work virtually all night uh, cutting out the costumes. I mean, talk about boring. You know, and there was just no way I was going to be able to like spend six hours enjoying the sound of the scissors. It was out of the question. So I just brought down Revelations of Christ, Swami's book. I brought down the computer with Swami reading that book, and I listened, just listened to him do it because it didn't take any mind to do what I was doing, and I enjoyed myself completely. You know, six or seven hours, I just sat there and in the middle of the night and just cut those costumes, and I was very, very happy. Very, very happy. But when I was had to stay up all night once, this was also costumes, because sewing is a very mundane task, the kind of sewing I had to do. One night when we were doing the Krishna play, because of my stupidity in not understanding that you can't put children in saris, because I thought saris were held up by the belt that you tuck it into, but they're actually held up by the hips of the woman. So if you put a sari on a pencil-shaped girl it falls off of her. So ha having the costumes all fall off at the dress rehearsal left me with a lot of work to do before the performance. <laughs> so some of my Indian friends tried to tell me, but I was too pig-headed to hear them. So the night before the first performance, I actually had to teach a class, and then I laid out on all the chairs. I had about five rows of projects. Every chair had something on it I had to work on. There was, the whole stage was set up and there was this huge, like, eight-foot picture of Krishna. And I sat in this room by myself all night long and sewed. You know, I didn't listen to music, I didn't do anything. It was utter bliss. Because it was just there. You know, it was happening. So, if it's happening, that's great. If it's not, then take the next step wherever you can go with it. You don't have to just... You don't want to fail. See, this is what Master says. Don't just fail. Don't set yourself a task that you can't succeed at it and fail at it 
and think that I should just keep trying to do the same thing and continue to fail. Do something that will make success more likely. And then when you begin to succeed, not only do you have more confidence in your success, but the act of succeeding actually raises your consciousness and increases the chance of success the next time. And so we're, we're very, very practical on this path. You know, it's a do-what-works kind of path, as long as you're going in the right direction. That's, those are good questions. Very good. Thanks. Anything else on that? I, I felt there was one more thought there, but I have lost it, so we'll just let it go. Okay. I love this other concept of bouncy. I didn't even stay with there for a minute. I mean, I'm not quite sure what bouncy actually is, but, you know, it's the same thing. Bouncing implies this, this energy that's shifting all the time, that's externally oriented. And as I know Swamiji at different times has suggested to various of us that we try to be a little more dignified. <laughs> that's the word he'll use. You know, a little, and he, he said that in one of his, that wonderful thing of 10 or 12 suggestions he gave us one New Year's. More dignity enhances your childlike qualities, which is an interesting combination. You know, that, that childlike is not uncentered. To be, to be dignified centers you, is, is a way of being a little bit centered, more centered. Yes? Um, we were talking, you talk sometimes about little kids and they jump up and down, so that might be... He was contained with it, and they aren't. <laughs> and he used, he used the energy to lift his consciousness to the spiritual line. He didn't just dissipate it. So often we dissipate our enthusiasm, and instead of it actually deepening our experience, it dissipates our experiences. And that's also what bouncy does. You know, people think they're having more fun if they're making more noise, but they're not necessarily having more fun. That's what people do when they drink. They just start making more and more noise. And that tells them they're having more fun. I went with uh, a friend uh, to uh, a new restaurant that opened in town, a very expensive restaurant. This was about, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. And we went in, and it was deafening in there, just deafening. And I said to my friend, who's much more knowledgeable about pop culture than I am, popular culture than I am, I said, my God, they're going to have to redo this whole restaurant. It's just a complete disaster. And he looked at me, you know, like, knowing that I was born yesterday, a really long time ago, he said they do this on purpose because then people walk in and they think that there's a real buzz in the room. <gasps> Mamma mia! Because I couldn't understand. It was a very you know, famous restaurant chain. Why would they build it so badly? You know, it's just what you think. It's like the parents saying, honey, your jeans are torn. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> I guess you'll have to throw them away. <laughs> so, all right. So, I love this one. He always knew how to act appropriately. One time a newspaper sent two young women to interview him at a hotel. They wanted to enter his room, but he said, let's talk out here in the corridor. Both women were provo- wore provocatively low-cut blouses. The master, throughout the interview, gazed fixedly into their eyes. As they left, they seemed disappointed. Yogananda went to the newspaper and asked the editor why he'd sent them, really. 
If you'd invited them into your room or allowed your gaze to shift down for even a second, the editor responded, I'd have plastered that story all over the front page. Isn't that despicable? That's a terrible thing to do, exclaimed Yogananda. So in that way, you ruin the reputation and maybe the lives of perfectly innocent people. I call that contemptible. A newspaper should report the news, not create it. And even if it does create it for editorial purposes, it should not be scurrilous. Now, Swamiji describes that as acting appropriately, both sides of that, which is being completely untouched by a deliberate effort to pull his mind down, and on the second time, expressing his mind very directly to the editor, not feeling that he had to just hold back and just sort of allow such a thing to happen, but feeling that it was quite appropriate for him to go and tell him what he thought of that man. Um, You have to feel divinely inspired before you act in these ways, but the word appropriately um, is one of my favorite words, and I was extremely happy to see Swami put it in here, because on the spiritual path we often get confused, and we think that the goal of the spiritual path is to always be nice, or always to be placid, And that's not at all true. The goal of the spiritual path is to do what is exactly right to do in that moment. In the early years of Ananda, there was a certain amount of play-acting at being a devotee. There was this one woman who was seriously play-acting at being a devotee, and one of my friends said, he said, said, she's a very confusing person because underneath all that play-acting at being a devotee, I think she's really a devotee. (laughs) And I said to one man once, I said, the person you actually are is so much more dynamic and interesting than the person you keep pretending to be. You know, <laughs> Why don't you just be the person you are? It's a much more spiritual person, genuinely. So what Swamiji is saying here is the spiritual path is not about anything external. It's entirely about what's really and genuinely going on within us. And I remember once when Swami was talking about In the early years of Ananda, we really didn't understand this. Um, We were falling in, we fell into the the sort of Catholic monastery idea of what it is to be spiritual, in which you, you know, you move slowly, you talk softly, you keep your hands, you know, in your sleeves, and you kind of glide about. Swami talked about being shown around a monastery once by this nun, and she was showing in the chapel, and she said, in a kind of breathless whisper, and here is where we worship the blessed Jesus. Like that. <laughs> and then he said, a few minutes later, another nun came by with a box of chocolates. And the nun said, ooh, chocolates, just like that. And he said he was far more inspired by her response to the chocolates than her response to the sanctuary. Because it was a genuine expression of her true nature. And I, I think in this class, I think it was here that I was talking about the seed, about how you can't get there except from um, where you are. A seed grows from the inside out and it expands and it simply can't be a fruit-bearing tree until it has gone through every other stage that it has to go through. And if you're only at the stage where you have a little sprout, you really can't walk around pretending you're a fruit-bearing tree. You have to be exactly the reality that you are. And... So there is no absolute standard of behavior that defines right behavior. 
because you have to act appropriately. You have to pro- have to act appropriately for the external circumstances. You have to act appropriately for your own stage of consciousness and what God really wants from you in that moment. You have to act appropriately according to the guidance that you receive. There's so many different factors involved that you can't just say, you know, that being nice is what it looks like. And that's one of the characteristics about the, the path of Ananda is that when people get really comfortable with it, there is no, there's no way that you can call it. At the same time, you can always recognize an Ananda person. But people just behave and have interests according to what is really genuine for them. And it always makes me really nervous when I see people assuming any kind of um, external behavior of any kind, even if it seems harmless. Because even though we'll often all come to the same conclusion about something, it's extremely important that we all arrive at it independently. And when it's finally arrived at, that I'm, I'm doing it because it's what I really feel, not because I'm afraid what will happen if I don't, or because this is what it ought to be. So that's why he said, he always, and even says here, he always knew how to act appropriately. He was always tuned, up, tuned in enough to his own inner reality that he was able to be that way. And, and knowing how to act appropriately is also... Um, really closely tied to your own self-understanding and your own self-honesty. I know I remember in the early years of being on the spiritual path, I, I may have shared this with you, but there was a man that I knew who had a whole lot of trouble through his life and a lot of trouble on the spiritual path and really ended up just getting really very confused in really profound ways over the course of a couple of decades. And later on, he and I talked together, and he talked about certain you know, things Master said, because some of the things that Master says can be very, very demanding. You know, renounce this, do this, you should you know, meditate deeper every single day, do Hong Sar for two hours, all the different things that he'll say. And my friend had tried to do all those things, and eventually just kind of cracked his brain a little bit, you know, with the strain of it. And he was telling me that, you know, the instructions that he felt that Master had given him through his own writings. And I laughed and I said, it never occurred to me that those things applied to me. (laughs) I mean, it never crossed my mind that I should take those instructions seriously. Because they just were so far beyond my ability. You know, some of the things that he was trying to do, I just, it wasn't appropriate instruction for me. And I, I guess I was just so um, cowardly. It never crossed my mind. But in, in retrospect, it was also a very healthy response. It, it just wasn't appropriate. I knew it wasn't for me. And, and we, have to, we always have to know how to behave appropriately, just exactly what we were talking about a minute ago. It's a very practical path. Even if you're supposed to just be able there to sit there and pull the weeds and feel enough of God's presence in the weeds to be perfectly happy, if you're not then that's not an appropriate practice for you. You've got to find a practice that will actually take you from where you're standing and move you forward. Yogananda, this is not exactly related to this, but it's similar. He said, if you're facing a test that you know is bigger than you can pass, then the wise thing to do is to run away. (laughs) I've always loved that. He said, rather than force yourself, if you can't run away, rather than force yourself to fail, he said, run away. Because it's not good to fail. Because if we keep failing, two things happen. We get, 
we get the thought of ourselves as a failure, and that very thought of being a failure weakens our willpower for the next attempt. And it also, um, it just, it's discouraging to continue to fail. It's just more than you can do. When I was learning to write, which by the grace of God I believe I finally have, I was in a position at Ananda where I was mostly, I was the main one who was writing promotion for Ananda, but everything that I was writing, because in those days I had to go to Swami Kriyananda, and he, he threw away almost everything that I wrote. And sometimes he would throw it away without reading it. He would hold it in his hands and he would feel that there wasn't enough magnetism. And then he would throw it away. Whoa. Every once in a while, every once in a while I get something through. He would, it would be, and he was really careful. This is okay. This will do. This is pretty good. <laughs> this is very nice. You know, I mean, it was not, it was not 100% but it was a very high percentage of what I wrote he threw away. And then he would try to tell me that it was helpful because, and when he would, then he would rewrite it. He would try to tell me it was helpful because I had eliminated the wrong options and that simplified it for him and he knew what was needed at this point. And he tried to be supportive. Um, but at a certain point I stopped writing. I just couldn't do it. I just completely lost heart and I just couldn't do it. I had to run away. And, you know, he, he was sympathetic. We both knew that I would have to come back to it. But I, it just got to be too much for me, and I just really stopped. Um, and then, I, you know, I came back to it after I kind of got my courage up again. But it was just, you had to. I mean, things happen sometimes that are just too hard to handle. If you run away with it, from it, with the thought that I'm never going to face this, if you run away with, with anger against God, if you run away with it with the thought that it's way too much for me, I'll never be able to do it, that's not good. But if you run away with it from the thought, this is more than I can handle now. I'm going to go... Once in a particular situation, I had a difficult karma with someone, and we reached a point where, we're, where mercifully we didn't have to be together anymore. And I said to Swamiji, I was asking him about it, and he said, well, maybe the karma is finished, and he let me sort of have that for about 15 seconds, maybe even, maybe only 10. He just let me have that thought. And then he said, but I don't think so. <laughs> but then he said, but you've gone as far as you can go right now. And then he said, you have to put it on the shelf. You have to strengthen yourself in other ways. And then when you have more strength, you can come back to it. And, and that's what he meant. That's what Master meant by running away from it. Not that you think... You've escaped it forever, but for now, I'm just going to put this on the shelf. I'm going to get strong in other ways, and then when I'm stronger, I'll come back to this. And that is often an appropriate response, but that's what's meant by an appropriate response. And sometimes an appropriate response, and you have to realize this, it depends on which way you're off-center. If you're off-center because you, you're, all your energy is suppressed and you, you, you can never have an emotion and you're never angry at anything and you're always afraid to rock the boat, you know, you need to become kind of a loudmouth lout for a while. That's really forward for you. That's, that's progress. That's the appropriate response. Because you're not really being nice. You're being terrified. Or self-censoring. Or have no confidence in yourself. Or, or have a, a, a completely worthless sense of your own value. So the, you have to know how to respond appropriately. And the examples that Master gives, you know, he... he 
maintained an elevated consciousness in the face of temptation and refused to allow them to pull his mind down. And then he went and spoke very firmly to someone who he thought had behaved wrongly. Of course, he had the right to do that, but very often we do too. Sometimes we do too. You know, and, and I think you need help to decide what's appropriate, especially if, you're, if your mind is a little scrambled about yourself. I mean, I don't think I ever could have made any progress if I didn't have people around me who would you know, raise the questioning eyebrow at some of my antics, which would cause me to ask myself, you know, which side of the ledger am I on right now? <laughs> Let's take a short break. I'm going to urge all of you, I'm going to use Adam as the perfect example of a perfect disciple at this point. <laughs> you may recall that I sent out an email to all of you asking you to write letters of gratitude that we will use as part of our concert and celebration on September 12th that we will put into a scrapbook and that some of them will be read during the program and we will interleave it with music. It's our very, very clever idea for the concert, which will be an absolute dud unless some of you write letters. Adam, unique among all of you at this point, including those who are listening to me on the recording, has in fact turned in a stellar example of what we want. Isn't that great? (laughs) None of the rest of you, not a single one of you have responded. And we need you to respond. Otherwise, we have a problem, a really big problem. So, pardon me? If you didn't get the email, here's what it said. It said, on September 12th, we're giving a concert for Swami Kriyananda to celebrate his spiritual anniversary. It's an event we're putting on for him. And you like to sort of have a theme for the music. So we had this really red-hot idea that people could write letters of appreciation that, and then some of them would be read, and then whatever's in the letters and the spirit of the letters would be illustrated by music. But it's not a praise fest of Swamiji, because he would be very bored if we just said, aren't you swell, and even better than that. What he really likes to hear is how delighted we are to serve God and to love God. And it's natural to say that aspects of his work have helped us to do that, but what really pleases him is the thought that our consciousness has shifted. So that's what we were asking. And Adam did a marvelous job. He just balanced it perfectly. I'm giving him such a hard time. <laughs> I am loving it completely. Because actually it was just really perfect. So, is there any questions or comments about acting appropriately? You know, I was going to just stay on this point for one more thing, which is, yes, Stacy. Who has the... Thank you. I just have a question, because um, I've heard the, not the phrase, but the quote, that we shouldn't suppress anything, we should transcend it. So can mm-hmm. you explain a little bit about that and how that relates? Yeah, the difference between suppressing and transcending. Um, there's also, before you transcend it, there, and there's, there's a third alternative to either transcending or suppressing, which is... Um, restraining yourself, (laughs) okay? To suppress, as I understand it, means that in some way 
the mere existence of whatever it is is frightening to you and you don't even want it to arise. You don't even want to acknowledge it. You don't want to accept that it's part of your reality. You just want to, you want to hide, hide it from yourself. And so that's just in the, in the Bhagavad Gita, there's the actual phrase of, of what avail is suppression? What, how will it serve you to suppress? Because it does not make the quality disappear. It simply gives it a secret power over you that will be very confusing to you because if you don't know what you're hiding from, you will merely be affected by it without having any sense of actual relationship. As Swamiji said, if you suppress something, as he put it, it will just come out in some weird way later. And then often when it comes out, it, it doesn't bear any relationship to anything. So it's very confusing. Plus, you, you, can't, you can't figure out what the appropriate response is because it's not connected to its apparent causes in interpersonal relationships. You know, if somebody suppresses something for a long time and then finally the pressure of that suppression bursts out over here in a reaction, then the person who's receiving that reaction, there's no way they can figure out how to respond to it because it's not connected to anything that's actually happening. It's connected to this long series of whatever it is that got all stored up there. So in relationships, it just creates an absolute mess. And in our own lives, if we have a lot of suppressed feelings, we're always, we have no capacity to understand ourselves or we draw the most ridiculous conclusions that just are not based on reality and then we build a whole train of, of decisions based upon these things that are totally disconnected. And so we have done nothing to resolve whatever it is that we have suppressed and then on top of that suppression we have laid an entire another dimension of misunderstanding which will then spin out and make its own reality and just make things worse and worse. Whatever it was that it started with, it's going to influence and define you anyway. So you absolutely get nowhere. Now, sometimes people in their anxiety about suppression feel that you just have to express everything. And that, and, and there's this there's this real fear, you know, created in the West about suppression. We're so anxious about suppression that people just blurt out everything that crosses their minds. They're very critical of the people around them. They say many negative things that are, are very hurtful and very unhelpful because, you know, I don't want to suppress what I feel. It's important not to suppress what I feel. Um, but once you know what you feel you actually want to use your good judgment as to, what, as to what to do with it. It's exactly what Master said here. Is this appropriate? You know, you're married to a woman who's very sensitive about her weight. You don't want to say, my honey, you're getting fat. You know, it's just like, it may be make you a little uncomfortable that she's not as slim and beautiful as she was when you married her, but you have to think in your mind, not merely that I feel this, but is this appropriate to say? What's going to be the result of this? If he never allows the thought to arise in his mind, you know that he's feeling a disinclination for this woman because of how her body has changed, then that was going to come out and you know bite him in the head in some weird way later. But once he knows that that's what's happening, then he has to decide what to do about it. You know? Weigh it against 
the effect of his actions, the other positive dimensions, to not be afraid to just realize, you know, that we're all aging and I'm not a young man myself anymore. You know, where is this fear coming from? Where is the aversion coming from? Is this, is this a worthy response? But not be afraid to have that feeling. kind of like denial or denial. just being dishonest with yourself. So I was thinking suppression in terms of, okay, I, I'm just not going to do something, like with habits or something like that. Suppressing well, if you're, if you're disciplining yourself, see, this is the, as I say, this is the grave mistake we make. Self-discipline is vital on the spiritual path. You can't just let every fool thing that runs through you come out. I mean, it's just a disaster. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, transcendence is when you can look at it and say, I just don't need to feel this way. You know, yes, it's true that so-and-so has been really unkind to me. I had a conversation with someone not too long ago and they were sort of talking about this problem they had with someone because sometimes they hurt, you know, their feelings were hurt. I said, don't carry a grudge, was the word, because I'd heard Swami use that word recently. Don't carry a grudge. And the person started to laugh and realized that was exactly what they were doing. You know, so-and-so was unkind to me, so I'm going to just be annoyed with them a long time. And then just sudden realization, why would I do that? You know, I don't need to do that. Yeah, they annoyed me. You know, they were unkind, but, you know, I probably provoked them. And then you transcend it because it happened, but so what? You're not having to discipline yourself not to feel that way. You just don't feel that way anymore. You just don't want to. Yeah, people have a right to be the way they are. Just let it go. Until then, discipline yourself. But whatever you do, don't suppress it. And you know, in the, in the um, letter I recently wrote about facing your fears, I was talking about just honest introspection. And a lot of times we suppress our fears because they spread, they frighten us. <laughs> so we suppress them. <laughs> but I was suggesting that you pay attention to when your reactions are out of proportion. Because when your reactions are out of proportion, it's always, almost always, because there's some suppressed reality that you're afraid to face. And so when, when, when a little fissure opens, you know, the, all that pressure comes out, just like in an in a aerosol can. You push it just a little and it all shoots out because it's under pressure. And when you find that your emotions are coming out under pressure, then you realize that inside of you you've really created pressure. And why is that? You know, what am I afraid to face and why am I afraid to face it? And you know, some things are not so good, but everything is, can be overcome. It's just, I mean, the worst, well, we have it in the Festival of Light now. We're all equal before God, even those who commit the worst sins. We're all equal before God. And, you know, so I've made some really bad mistakes. There you have it. Maybe I have some really bad habits. It, the first step to getting rid of it is just not being afraid to say, there it is. And it's, you know, it takes a lot of courage. You don't have to go plaster it on the sidewalk, but, you know, on a billboard on the sidewalk, but you have to, as, as Master said, in fact, you don't want to tell your faults, he said, to people who may, in a fit of anger, throw them back at you, is how he put it. But uh, he said, from God, you must have no secrets. And that's you know, that's really important. Yeah. No, there's no hurry here. <laughs> um, do you think that fears are 
underlying all desires? Or do you think that's somewhat separate? Or habits, things like that? I think fear underlies a whole lot of stuff that's moving us off, off of center. You know, I think fear has a, a tremendous... I mean, that's why... I was, I was actually going to start to say before this line of questions came was, you know, a lot of times people are behaving correctly because they're afraid to behave incorrectly or they're too lazy, as Swamiji said. They're not really good, they just don't have the energy to sin. <laughs> or they don't have the courage to sin. And they're, they're just filled with, you know, bad thoughts and bad feelings, but they don't have the nerve to act on them. That's not being good. And that was Yogananda, uh, not Yogananda, Vivekananda. This very, you know, limp, spineless character came and asked Vivekananda how to realize God. And Vivekananda asked whether he could lie without being perceived as a liar and steal without getting caught. And the man in his very limp manner said, oh no Swamiji, I would never do those things. And he said, well go out and become a a very good liar and an excellent thief and then come back and talk to me. And the story was that the man, that was who the man really was. And the only energy he had was for evil, but he needed at least to be evil before he could become good. Because he, he was merely suppressing everything in himself, thinking that that would make him good. But he, had, he was only would have energy for evil, become evil, and then after he's experienced enough evil, then he can come back, and then Vivekananda would have something to work with. Before that, that's why Swamiji said, it's better to be over-emotional than too self-censoring. And I was starting to say a while ago, in the early years of Ananda, we thought it was better to be too self-censoring, and we were really scared. We were really scared of everything we felt. And in fact, in the history of Ananda, we were really scared of everything we felt, and we thought we all had to be monks and nuns to find God. There was a small coterie of people who were genuinely drawn to that lifestyle, and it gradually became the thing you had to do. If you were serious about finding God, you had to join the monastery. And the, the, you know, the women and the men's monastic groups just began to swell. So just, they just got huge, and they were just filled with people who had no monastic calling, really, but were there because they thought they ought to be there. And Swami was just, like, he just didn't know what to do because the whole community was not only becoming inappropriately monastic, it was just becoming suppressed. And uh, that was when he prayed to Master. He said, you know, we're supposed to be a householder community. We need to have families and marriages. And he said people are, uh, are embarrassed if they want to get married and ashamed if they want to have children. And he just said, that's not going to work. And that was when he felt inspired by Master that he should leave his monastic calling and get married. And Swamiji said when the inspiration came to him, as Master's voice inside, he said, you know, but sir, I'm a monk. And Master said to him inside, it's all right. You'll be fine. That was what he said. You'll be fine. So Swamiji, in fact, embraced a householder lifestyle for a while, you know. and, And as soon as he did that, what happened was, what well, was the death of the monastic order, that cycle, completely. But what he actually did is that he suddenly did the unthinkable, which was he ceased to be a monastic and became a householder, which was so far, so far outside the realm of possibility that when somebody first told me, you know, that was the direction he was going, I said, oh no, there must be a misunderstanding. I just couldn't even imagine it. But what happened is he said, I felt guided to go this way. It's what I felt inwardly I should do. And for the first time in a long time, it occurred to us that we should act according to what we felt inwardly guided to do. 
instead of just doing what we thought we were supposed to do. And the first thing that happened, partly because Swamiji was no longer a monastic, but it was just the astral hour, just, you know, the whole exaggerated uh, inclination toward monasticism just melted because people were able to ask themselves what I really feel like. Do you know, I want to have a family. I don't want to be a lonely old nun, you know. Or other people were saying, I really, you know, I don't have any interest in that, but this is what I really feel to do. But he was making what was appropriate for us as individuals, the criteria, not some external condition. And once that hypnosis was broken, you know, Swami lived in that lifestyle for a while and then it dissolved and he went back to being a monk. Um, But by then the hypnosis was broken. By then people had gained a little um, confidence and also felt that it was appropriate to ask yourself the question, "What, what do I feel? Now, How did I get there? Oh, fear. Because a great deal of what people were doing during that time was based on fear. If I were really serious, if I really, you know, if I go ahead and have a family, I might get attached. You know, I don't want to fall into delusion. You know, I don't want to do the wrong thing. I'll just curl up over here, you know, and just hold everything in and just, you know, do this really narrow thing and then I'll be certain that I'll be good. But that's not freedom, that's fear. Just as simple as that. Fear is not freedom. Freedom is the ability to do exactly what is needed and you're free of compulsion. If you're compelled in any direction, that's not good. I, when I'm thinking, I think about my future incarnation and I think, you know, I've married twice in this life and both times I didn't have the freedom not to. I didn't have the inner freedom not to. I mean, marrying David was a very, very smart thing for me to have done and it's, you know, it's been wonderful even the marriage I had earlier when I was quite young was, was a good idea. Um, so it wasn't like it was the wrong decision, but I didn't have the freedom not to. I was compelled by my desire to be with David. I was compelled by it. It was just a fact. I was perfectly open about it. I thought it was better just to be open about it than to try to make something of it that it wasn't. You know, I just was not happy. And that's why I said to Swamiji, as long as he's at Ananda, I'm not going to be a happy nun. That's a certainty. You know, if he left, I wouldn't follow him. But as long as he's here, I'm not a happy nun. So I married him. It was the right, right thing to have done. And I don't mind marrying again. It's been wonderful. But I don't want to do it out of compulsion. Because that's the difference. It's not, it wasn't the action. It was the fact that I really didn't have an inner choice at that point. And it wasn't because God was making me do it. Maybe he was. Maybe he was using my desires. The fruit of the action has been very positive. But nonetheless, in the moment, I wasn't able to just stand in the center and say, what do you, you, know, what do you want? It was, it was beyond me to do that. So fear, which causes you to suppress, is just as much of a, a compulsion as desire, which forces you to act. And that's what you have to realize. So non-action is not necessarily freedom. Non-action can be even more binding, especially if it's suppressed. In fact, it often is more binding. Because at least if you act, you've brought the energy out and you're experiencing what it has to give you. And then it'll teach you. If it's just self-censored, that was what Swami was saying, if it's just self-censored and held in, it has no place to go. And you have no capacity to learn from whatever it is that's pushing you. It just sits there and comes out in some weird way later. <laughs> you know. So it's, it's a 
It's much more fun. Yes, you were going to say, Marilyn. just um, wondering what is the difference between um, being appropriate, having appropriate behavior and being nice? And being nice? Well, sometimes situations do not call for being nice. In this particular situation, Master did not go to the editor and say, oh, that wasn't a very pleasant thing that you did. He excoriated him for behaving in a scurrilous manner. It was not appropriate to be nice. That man had behaved very, very badly. And sometimes in our lives people behave very badly or they mistreat us in ways that they should not or they allow, they diminish us in ways that are not correct. And the right thing to do is to stand up and say, don't you ever speak to me like that again. And that's not nice, but that's just what you do because there's, no, there's nothing right about... See, to be unselfish is not to allow people to treat you wrongly. To be... Un, to be um, Selfless is to consider yourself of equal value to everyone. It's like you're not worth more, but nor are you worth less. Because if you're worth less, if you act like you're worth less, that's a lie. And so if you let somebody really mistreat you, because after all you're such a, a you know, piece of dirt that that's how it ought to be, that's a lie. That's not the truth. If this person is, is behaving in an evil way, you don't deserve it. They, they should be told what, what you're doing. And sometimes the lesson is, you know, you pick up a book and bash them over the head and kick them out of your house. And that's the absolute appropriate thing to do because that's the right response to their behavior. You know, the modern psychology calls it enabling, where somebody's behavior is wrong and your response to it allows them to keep on doing the wrong thing. That's not right. And you have to be careful about not being nice. But uh, lots of times it's just exactly what ought to be done. It's like being assertive. Well, it's being assertive in the right way. It's being assertive because it's the appropriate way to behave. Yeah. Yeah. And if one is fearful about being assertive, then one should be assertive a lot. (laughs) You know, it's always appropriate to be assertive. I had to go through a period in my late teens when I was 19. I had to learn to be assertive. Maybe people think I learned it too well. But <laughs> I had to learn to be assertive because I was really afraid. And I just asserted myself left, right, and center about things that I didn't even care about because I just had to practice until I got comfortable speaking up. I, d- I didn't assert myself where I should have, but I asserted myself around all the edges of it until I got stronger. Yeah, so it depends. And then you, can, then you have a free choice. Then you can decide... Oh, this person is being a jerk. You know, I, it's not my problem. I don't have to say anything. Or you say, this, you know, this person is not behaving properly toward me and I just don't appreciate it. And I'm just going to say something about it. Because it's, it's appropriate for me to stand up for myself. I need to practice. Yeah, it makes sometimes, you know, makes other people nervous, but that's all right. <laughs> you know? This one woman, just speaking of those early suppressed days, this one woman, one of the fake devotees, used to always go around in white, and she always used to, you know, be real soft about everything. And finally, the psychological pressure literally caused her to have a psychotic breakdown. She just blew out one day. And, you know, she was, you know, wandering around without her clothes on. I mean, she, was, she really went off somewhere. And then, you know, it, it settles. These things settle. 
and she she did the needful and pretty much came back to a relatively psychologically healthy state. Boy, did she have a different personality. She was outspoken. She was slightly raunchy. She was great. <laughs> she had been so boring before. Just unbearable. I could hardly stand to be in the same room with her. She was so boring. When she came back, she was marvelous. You know, she was authentic. She was just really exactly who she was. And I mean, no wonder she blew her top because she was suppressing so much of her just natural kind of enthusiasm, raw enthusiasm for life in the name of being spiritual. So it doesn't work. Suppression doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs> well, I think we've covered it for this evening. Okay, one more round of this, and then we go on to something else. Okay, thank you all very much. <laughs>